Hi, listeners. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Case Podcast, another conversation about software engineering. Um, today, I have a guest that I know pretty well because we have been doing this podcast thing for a long, long time together, even though it's been a long pause since we recorded the last one. Welcome, Markus Völter. Hi, Stefan. Uh, nice to be Marcus. here. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Haven't podcasted about software in a long time. <laughs> But you're a very regular podcaster. As absolutely. Many people will know. Maybe you can you can just start by introducing yourself. Yes. Well, yeah. Um, I am basically an independent consultant, spending much of my time working for Etemis, um, and um, I deal mostly with language engineering, building domain-specific languages and the tools around them. It all started um, 15 years ago, maybe, with, uh, at that time, it was called Model Driven Development, wrote a book about it. Um, and this kind of evolved into building custom languages. We've been doing this for a while in healthcare, in engineering disciplines, in finance, in government, in currently payroll and tax. Um, very wide uh, range of domains. But the commonality is that we try to capture the essence of these domains in languages and allow people to express um well, business logic or whatever you want to call it, Fachlichkeit uh, with this language. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've basically introduced the topic as well, because that's obviously going to be what we're going to talk about today. Yes. And we're going to um, uh, do a little bit of that, and we're also going to contrast it or maybe combine it or um, discuss it in conjunction with domain-driven design with yep. DDD. And with maybe other current topics such as microservices, no, no podcast without microservices. Of yes, course. of course not. Um, yeah. So, and that's very interesting because uh, I think uh, this is a topic that interests both of both of us, and we'll both have lots of opinions. Yep. So, our audience should be prepared for us uh, sharing lots of opinions that, at, which at least in the past were not often the exact same ones, which I think is a very nice. Exactly. Thing I think us. we agree on many of the fundamentals and basic ideas at least based on past conversations but then at mm -hmm. some point we kind of branch off into different you know sub directions or something and where we start disagreeing so looking forward yeah, to seeing so if this is going to happen again yeah it's going to be interesting okay so uh, my suggestion is why don't you start us off by uh, introducing what language engineering as i think you called it is all about Right. Well, language engineering is the <laughs> the art and science of no. It's basically um, custom language development, right? So, assuming we have decided we need a custom programming language or custom modeling language, doesn't really matter how you call it. Um, then, language engineering is the um, you know the profession or the activity of building the language. In the traditional case, it would have been you know defining a grammar implementing a parser, maybe name resolution, type checking, and then perhaps an interpreter or code generator. Um, and fundamentally, this hasn't changed, except that uh, tools have evolved a bit. So depending on the kinds of tools you use, let's say Xtext, then your grammar definition also, give, also gives you a basic IDE with code completion, syntax highlighting. You can then further customize it if you, for example, choose to use MPS for your language definition, metaprogramming system from JetBrains. Then you don't even define a grammar because it's a projectional editor and you define the language in a, in a different way. And so language engineering basically says, let's start with a domain, let's analyze what is relevant to that domain, what do people in that domain want to express, 
you know, in terms of behaviors, structures of software systems in that domain. And then let's implement the language with a suitable set of abstractions and a suitable notation, which is very important, right? Often people see language more as notation than about the abstractions that's behind them. Um, and then people can efficiently and effectively model stuff, and then we can generate or analyze or interpret and run. That's basically the mm -hmm. nutshell. Mm -hmm. Very nice. So I think for, for some of our listeners, um, this, might, this might all be completely old news, right? Nothing new about anything you just said. Um, but some people might come from a different perspective. So I think some some listeners might be might equate this with the design of programming languages. Yeah. Right? You design, you invent a new programming language, then of course what you will be doing to a large degree is language engineering, probably mm -hmm. the essence of what you're doing, right? You're designing a language that has, has all that you just said, has a syntax of some kind, it needs some kind of tooling to operate, it needs to uh, figure out how to express things. Um, there are lots of things that uh, that that are involved there. Maybe some listeners have been doing that as part of their studies, their education. Yeah. Uh, but many of them will say, "Well, that is how how is that relevant to me if I'm not a programming language designer?" Exactly. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yes, this is where the notion of domain-specific languages comes in. The the reason why I explained it uh, a bit more generally is that language engineering really really doesn't necessarily imply that the language you built is somehow specific to a particular niche, right? It 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 could be a general purpose language. As you say, the process is exactly the same. By the way, the, the economic um, constraints are a bit different, right? If you are Microsoft mm -hmm. and you design a language called C Sharp, then you can easily afford to invest, whatever, 20 man years, or person years, I should say, into an interpreter or generator slash compiler. But if you do that for, uh, in the context of a project, for a particular business domain, then 20 years for a generator is probably a bit too much. So the trade-offs are different. Um, but domain-specific languages, the idea is that um, if you want to express something, um, and typically a lot of some things in a particular domain, then it's worth building your own language because you can uh, be more succinct, you can describe things more in a more abstract way um, with more domain semantics, which gives you more interesting analyses. Usually another benefit is that you are independent of a particular deployment technology or implementation language. So there's an aspect of longe longevity. Um, you know, you basically avoid the legacy system trap because when you want to change the implementation technology, you don't have to re-extract the application, the business logic from the implementation code and then kind of lift it and implement it in a different language. Um, you have it already in its, in its purest form uh, as a model expressed with a DSL. And so that mm -hmm. is basically the idea. Um, and let me add one more sentence. Um, the you, you might say, well, w what's the point? I can express everything with a programming language. After all, it's Turing complete. Why, right? Why should I build my own language? And turns out that if you want to, for example, get doctors to specify um, diagnostics or treatment algorithms formally and executably, and so that they can be checked and be verified. Or if you want to ex want to make tax consultants, tax experts express tax calculations, they really don't want a programming language with which they can build general purpose abstractions and with all the complexity that goes along with it. They want a tailored language where the language itself knows about the domain. Right? And that is where DSLs come in. The programs become shorter, 
more understandable, maybe have a you know bunch of tables and fraction bars to make it more readable, stuff like that. Okay, so I have a lot of things that I disagree with, mm -hmm. um, but I think I'm going to save them for a bit because I want to make sure we have the basics down first, right? Yes. So I think I think that was a very good explanation of a domain of the domain specific aspect, right? So mm -hmm. generally, people won't be designing general purpose programming no. languages because yes. unless it's maybe a hobby project or something yes. that you want to do just for the fun of it, which is a great motivation, a, well, great, a very good reason for doing it. But most people won't be doing that as part of their day job because they're not language designers at a company. Yes. That there are some languages. some exceptions. For example, we have a, a general purpose functional programming language which we have built with MPS for the explicit purpose of extending it domain specifically, right? Mm -hmm. So then you have basically a domain specific language, but you reuse basic expressions, operators, comparisons, stuff like that. So that's mm -hmm. kind of a, a middle ground. Yeah, but let me let me add something for to, to maybe connect it to uh, to something that. I, I would guess most of our listeners, if they're programmers, have experienced, which is you always, you very often design quick little languages, not not with a very formal process or mm -hmm. even very formal tooling. When you, for example, design a little configuration language or something, mm -hmm. right? You want to have some external file that you can read in at runtime to set some key value pairs or something like that. And as everybody knows, these things grow and, and become bothersome and then you regret that you didn't use the proper tooling to do that but whatever most people have done some something like that right or it mm -hmm. could be some language that you accept from the user where they maybe enter something into some ui or it could be something that you that they even enter with the help of some ui control specifically built for that purpose not not exactly like an ide but a little bit like an ide because it helps them enter the information that conforms to whatever format or or model it is that you represent with that. So at least a little bit, I think most people will have been exposed to that idea, right? at least. And what you've been spending the last two decades on is essentially just that, right? You've completely focused, as far as I, as I gather from what I read from you, what I hear from when we talk yep. to each other, you've completely focused on this particular thing, the engineering aspect of, of language. Well, yes, with two additions. One, uh, a language is never developed in isolation, right? There is always an architecture of the overall system. There are business processes associated with it. And of course, you, you always uh, take that into account and uh, design all of that together so that things make sense. And mm -hmm. the second comment here is that although you can say, well, you know, a sophisticated language for payroll calculation with, with semantic versioning uh, data inheritance, incremental calculation, uh, and temporal data is a language. And, you know, a little configuration language with three different language concepts is also a language. Yes, but comparing the two in terms of um, size, complexity, the associated tools, the usability concerns um, or user experience concerns for the, for the prospective users it doesn't really make too much sense to put them into the same basket. Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. Okay. Very so, good. So, sorry, you first. Yeah, well, I, I was suggesting because we want to put this into the context uh, of DDD, would this be a good time for you to recap, refresh my mind a little bit about DDD? Sure, I, I can try. May, so, okay. Just for me as, as, as context, I read the big book back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been confronted with uh, DDD again and again in various projects, and I remember things like bounded context or the ubiquitous language. But I'm probably a DDD beginner. 
Um, well, so I wouldn't I wouldn't consider myself a, a complete expert, right? I have mm -hmm. some colleagues who are more into this, but I think I can I can do well enough for for the intro for me. <laughs> uh, well, not that, but it's probably <laughs> probably good enough for somebody who wants to get an intro to the whole thing, right? Yeah. I and I refer you to a DDD focused. Uh, episode or the, even a DVD focused podcast if you want to yeah. get more details about that. But to, to, to just give people a general introduction who don't know what this is about or maybe have read read the books or read an article a while ago, essentially domain driven design is nothing new as well. It's been there for, I don't know, 15 years. Um, it's been sort of rediscovered with the whole microservices um, emergence mm -hmm. um, because it people found out that it matches, that some of its, some of its ideas have a uh, are a very good match with what many people do with their microservices architectures. Um, so in general, there are I think the, the core things are still the same with maybe one or two additions. So uh, in the in the original book by Eric Evans, uh, there are two parts. One is the tactical DDD part. One is the strategic DDD part, um, and they're both relevant for our discussion very much so. Um, although for at least the microservices part and what most people these days do with domain-driven design, the strategic part is the more important one. Mm -hmm. And in the strategic part of the book, the idea is that there are some general high-level concepts that can help you structure your software or your architecture in a way that makes it uh, more maintainable, easier to evolve, easier to manage, easier to develop, easier to collaborate about with your business stakeholders, um, all of those things are embodied in a few concepts. And you've mentioned a few of them. Maybe we can pick two. One is the idea of the ubiquitous language. Mm -hmm. That is the, essentially the idea that you capture the terminology and the concepts and the relationships between those concepts that actually hold for the business as a whole, not something yep. isolated to development, to programmers, to implementation, but something that connects everybody within within the company. Ideally, yeah. that language would be the language that everybody understands, that everybody can speak, so that you can get the transfer of concepts and ideas and the possibility to, to discuss things among different uh, different stakeholders in the whole in the whole game. Right. So you can talk to a business person about something because the language you use, the words you use to accept to express concepts, are the same ones that they use when they talk about what it is that they do in their in their yep. daily work. Yeah. Yep. So um, the the idea of expressing things with good words and giving giving uh, finding good names or extracting the good names or and giving know, a good meaning discovering and a well, them well defined yeah. meaning to all these words exactly yeah. uh, lends itself to this idea that you have a, a core model that is very much technology independent. So it's in contrast to what you just proposed. It's written in a programming language. Yeah, typically, typically, but not necessarily an object-oriented language. But that's sort of where where the roots of the whole yeah. DDD thing are. Although there are people doing it with functional programming, we have an episode. We had an episode on that as well with Mike Spaber. But essentially, the idea is that you that you uh, um, uh, put a lot of emphasis on creating um, abstractions in the case of old classes and methods and variables and parameters with good names that actually help you express what it actually is the business does in a way that reads as if it's a description of what somebody told you, as opposed to, you know, something transcoded from one yep. world into another. Yeah. The second probably Be before, most important... Before, sure, you, go before you go on to the second one, it's probably obvious to everybody how this ubiquitous language, in my mind, is half the way to the main specific language, right? That's kind of an obvious connection point. Now go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes and no. I sort of 
didn't want to interrupt your, your flow at the beginning. Yeah. So I didn't want to distract you with, with the concept of internal DSLs. Right. Yeah. And I suggest that maybe we, we pick that up again after sure. we've done the DDD thing, right? Because yeah. that's sort of probably where the connection is, right? But let's maybe postpone that for, for, for a minute. Yep. So, um, but I, but I, I definitely agree there is a connection here, right? There yep. is some similarity and it's essentially the, the idea, the, the probably good idea that it makes sense to talk to the business. If you're a developer, if you're a programmer and to actually uh, you know, use the words that they use instead of, you know, yeah, picking others. Sure. That's yes. kind of a very obvious thing. That's kind of a trivial statement, yeah. It is, yeah. But but as we as we both know, right, those trivial statements have <laughs> have the problem that they're very often uh, not not uh, known and discounted and yeah. not taken for, uh, not, not viewed with the importance that they actually have. Yeah. So, okay, right. so ubiquitous language, that I think is one thing. The second thing um, from the strategic part that I find very important is the one that you mentioned as well, which is the idea of a bounded context. Yeah. Now, if you if you use OO methods, um, OO methodology to engineer a model, right, a model with all of those language, with all of those concepts, then at some point in time, that model becomes really big. And at some point in time, it becomes too big for its own good. Um, it becomes so huge that it's hard to understand it. What also happens is that you have an overlap of words. So, you might call something an account and I might call something an account, but because the two of us work in different apartments, we might mean completely different things. Did you, so did you just us, say work in different apartments instead of departments? Was that a COVID? Uh... <laughs> I, did I say apartment? I meant I think department. you did, but we actually no, okay. do work in different apartments. That's 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 very true as well. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this is a this is a completely socially distant podcast yes. recording. At the moment, right? <laughs> okay. So okay. So departments is what I wanted to say. Yeah. Um, so if people if people in different departments or different branches of the business use the same word, then that does not necessarily mean that it's the same concept that they're talking about. And again, this is a completely trivial statement. But um, people who've been in this industry for a while have probably suffered through some variant of the enterprise data model fallacy <laughs> yeah. or the canonical data model fallacy, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. The idea that, you know, you just walk around uh, the company and talk to everybody. And once you've done that, you have, you have gathered everything that there is to be known about a customer. And then you define the one and only customer class or record or data type or whatever, which then ends up having 12,568 attributes and becomes completely unmanageable because every change requires synchronizing with all of those people again. So yeah. to make a long story short, the idea of a bounded context is to explicitly model um, uh, isolated parts to, to acknowledge that it's a good idea to have sort of islands of, of meaning that, that are coherent, that actually form a reasonable boundary across a, a bunch of knowledge, a bunch of, a bunch of concepts and their relationships. And then you can have another bounded context that is connected somehow, that has maybe some overlap or some relation between its concepts and the concepts of another bounded context. But it is, it's allowed to, for example, reuse the same words. It's allowed to assign different meaning to some of them. And it's allowed to focus on what it is that it's about, as opposed to being about everything at once. Mm -hmm. And if you have different bounded contexts, that might actually end up being owned by different organizational units, let's say teams, then you need some way to manage the connection between those things, which is also a huge part of the whole strategic DDD uh, part of the book. And there are multiple strategies of dealing with that. So one, one bounded context might be owned by a team that can just dictate its terms to another yeah. one. Um, another, another situation might be where you explicitly 
um, create a, what's called an anti-corruption layer to isolate yourself against changes occurring okay. in another place. Basically, um, mapping, right? Mapping, mapping, and, and uh, ways to address the boundaries between the bounded contexts yeah. in different ways, right? You might yeah. share code, yeah. but not something I would advise. But typically, you have you have some strategy of doing that. That is the strategic part, and then for the technical part. Um, typically, if I if I explain DDD, especially to business people, or you know, while talking about high level architecture, I say, don't worry about the technical DDD part now. We can talk about that later. But it actually mm. is very relevant to our discussion, I think, because it also has this language aspect. Um, in the uh, in the technical DDD part, there is a bunch of um, being an old UML person. I tend to call them stereotypes, although that's not the terminology <laughs> being used there. Right? There's a bunch of of uh, concepts like, for example, an entity or an aggregate or a yeah. value object or a service, yeah. which are all sort of, you could call them roles that classes play, or you could call them a classes in their own right, or meta classes well, it's, it's or stereotypes. It's, it's basically whatever. a simple meta model, right? A meta model it's a for, simple, yes. for dealing with that. Go ahead. Oh, you're right. It is a simple meta model. The problem that I've found in the past is that once you use the word meta model, you 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 lose about half of your audience. Yeah, I don't care as long because as the other one stays around. Sorry. That's yeah. Ex again, one of the nice differences <laughs> between those two worlds, I think. Um, there is a there. You are of course right, as you know. So it's a, it is a meta model. It sort of defines the structure that you can then use to define the actual model, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a model for the model that defines. Again, you, probably some people will now see why so many people don't want to talk at that level. And, and not, not only am I an old UML person, I'm also an old um, OMG, meta model, whatever creep. So I can remember multiple meta model layers, like, you know, the, the, um, having a meta model and a meta, meta model and a meta, meta, meta model. And, oh, yes. you and, can and, spend and, and, lots of time. And, and, and if we and, say that M3 is self-defining, we've lost the other half of the audience. Yeah, so that's, it's not, it's, yeah. <laughs> Which is why I try to avoid that. Sure. Which doesn't doesn't make it any less true that what's in the DDD book is actually just a set of stereotypes in the in the technical DDD part, sure. right? That just happened to work for Eric Evans, and that and that is actually one of my critiques at the in of DDD. Um, some a lot of people sort of assume that this is the canonical set of of stereotypes, right? That is how you, it, it's the only way to do it because it's in the book. And well, this is like. Which is, I think, uh, which is limiting yourself way too much. Yes. Even if you're not into the meta model thing at all, if you're, if you're not into DSLs or M MDD or anything like that, it's kind of really sad that people think just because this was the snapshot of the of the number of stereotypes that he had when he wrote the book, this somehow makes them magically appropriate or true. Yep. They're not. There's they're they were they're a good start, but there are many others that might make much more sense for your particular. See, work. this is really interesting because I think also this 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 meta model. Now we've used the word many times. Um, th this meta model is is almost useless except for as the basis of basically data in data out applications. Right? It is not in any way interesting to capture. Um, you know, interesting business logic. On the other hand, we have the ubiquitous language, which is supposed to capture the um, essence of the domain abstractions. Correct? No, and I, I disagree. I disagree. Okay. So I'll, maybe maybe this is where the disagreements start, right? So finally, <laughs> finally. So what you just said is that sort of puzzled me a bit because what you just said was that the this meta model is not really important except for maybe data and data out applications. 
Um, I didn't I, say it's not I, important. I said it's insufficient for... It's insufficient. Okay, then I agree with that. Okay. Um, because I, I sort of, you know, I often point people to an old article that you wrote. Um, I don't know. When was that? 10 years ago? 15 years ago, the architecture as a language thing that you did for InfoQ. Yeah. That was ages ago. Yes. I still remember that because it's a very good article. Um, and I link, I, I, I sent people to read it because it's, it is, a, to me, a very important idea. Doesn't necessarily mean that I buy the tool chain idea or you yeah. know, any of those, con not at all. But the idea is that, well, maybe you should tell me what the idea of that article is before well, the, I paraphrase it for you. As far as I remember, because I have since changed my view quite a bit. Ah, um, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. There are two different things you can um, build modeling languages slash DSLs for, right? One is technically motivated. So you want to describe as meaningful first-class abstractions, the architecturally relevant things in your system. And that is the architecture as language idea, right? Um, I start mm -hmm. with interface, component, connector, the usual stuff that everybody has. But then I point out that if you're not limited to these five abstractions, and it might be the other five from Eric Evans here, but if you're able to define your own set of architecture abstractions, like for example, replication interface for data, then you can come up with much more meaningful and relevant architectural descriptions that are beyond the stupid box line abstraction that exactly. everybody seems to use. Exactly. Now, however, and, and I think this is still very relevant. A, a colleague slash friend of mine has used this approach to describe the uh, architecture of satellite onboard systems. Uh, and he has done it in a way where um, these abstractions are directly integrated into C. And of course, this gives him uh, the ability to directly express architecturally relevant concepts directly in the code. And you know, with all the possible automation for code generation after, beyond that. But I have since moved on almost completely. I haven't built one of these architecture languages in probably eight years because we have, or I have since moved on to building languages for the business, right? For the actual business domain core of mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. Businesses again. Um, so there you don't model any of these technical considerations. You, you really talk about whatever, uh, payroll version, about temporal data, about a yearly deduction and stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I, I get that difference. Um, let me just say, let me, let me just argue why, why I still think the first one is relevant, right? I'm not, I'm not necessarily suggesting that you build a DSL for that, as your article mm -hmm. suggests. But what I'm observing is that that is essential. Uh, that is essentially technical architecture work defined. What it I is. think you do as an architect, as a, as a technical architect, maybe not as a business architect, but as a technical architect, you come up with with um, patterns, drawing on a set of patterns that you already know. You adapt them to the situation at hand, and you come up with a language for expressing. The architecture of the system, whether that is a formal language that you have a DSL for, an, an interpreter, a code generator, whatever, doesn't matter. You have it in terms of, you know, the fact that you use those words, right? When I'm in a project, I say, well, let's build an, an SCS, a self-contained system. That's one mm -hmm. example of that, right? An self-contained system means that. Let's give that self-contained system an asynchronous interface, or let's use UI integration here. Let's use um, a, a business event uh, uh, stream here or something like that. Right? I yep. use those words and those words are 
the, the jargon, the language of the architecture of this particular system with a lot of overlap with other systems, definitely because it would be stupid to invent everything from scratch. Yeah, of course. At least the systems have some similarity. But no two systems are 100% alike because no two set of sets of architectural requirements are alike. Yes. So that is why I, why I point people to that, to, that, to that idea. And that, I think, is a very valuable concept, completely regardless of whether or not you're using a formal DSL to do Yeah, because things. one thing you often do is you represent these concepts in your frameworks and platforms, right? You might have base classes or... For example, yes. You know, stuff that makes this uh, architect these, archite these architectural abstractions more concrete, even if you don't build a language. Well, yes, and it could be, it re I mean, that is maybe an, another interesting aspect here. I think it could be a variety of things, but that doesn't change the, the concept, right? Yeah, it could of course. be, as you say, a base class. It could be an interface. It could be a set of related interfaces. It could be a description in a file. It could be some XML or JSON these days, or it could be a particular way to structure the outer uh, observable surface of a system. Mm -hmm. There are so many ways to represent it. That is a That's sort of a, another discussion. The basic, the basic idea is that you abstract from all of those concrete details to something that has a catchy name that people can relate to and can use to talk well, about the, those concepts on a different level. It is more than a name, though, because one problem, if you do it only with the means of your programming language and frameworks, it's very hard to um, make these things declarative which makes mm -hmm. analysis much harder, assuming you want to analyze for all kinds of reasons why you want to do True. what you maybe don't want to do. So that's where uh, formalizing it into an actual language has definite advantages. I'm not saying you always need it, of course, but yeah. Um, sorry, brief interruption. I'm back. You fell from the chair? Uh, no, I just had somebody walk into the room. But <laughs> okay. Don't worry. Um, Yes, you are right. So uh, that is that is an, but that's another very very interesting thing. So maybe maybe let's address th things one after the other. So I th I'm, I understand why you said you've moved on because you sort of changed the. I would phrase it differently. I would say you've changed the domain you address. Right? You use the same means, but you don't use them to address the domain of a technical architect. You use the means to address the needs of a business person, which is completely valid. Fair enough. But it's not. It's it's sort of you moved. You've moved on from from my domain to a tax accountant's domain. Right yeah, Is that well, a fair way to phrase it. It, it yes. I mean, it's obviously not specifically a tax accountant, but um, sure. it, it might be all kinds of things. And the, the, so sure. you're right. And the, and of course you can combine the two layers very nicely. But the the reason why I've done that is because um or why i've moved on is because ultimately if you look at the total increase in productivity um it is much more leverage i used the word please congratulate um much more leverage if um you can get your domain people who ordinarily might write documents and crap um to quote program um It's a much bigger deal than if you can improve the efficiency of your architecture team by whatever twenty percent or thirty. So that's I understand. Where so you sort from your perspective, you sort of moved on to more interesting domains, right? Domains. No, where I, the actually, if you think about taxes, I wouldn't call them interesting <laughs> okay, at all. <laughs> so it's not about. It's really not about interesting. It's really about the. It's about okay. the impact. Seriously, it's about Fair the enough. impact the more approach impactful. can have. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. So, but regardless of the domain, right? Regardless of the domain, there is a question of, um, is this a good idea or not? Yes. And if it's not a good idea, why not? 
because mm -hmm. I totally, and maybe some context as well, I spend a lot of my professional career doing those things too, right? So I think I'm a little older than you. I think I might have even started a little earlier, but I sort of abandoned it a bit in the middle of my career. Mm -hmm. So I'll move on to different things. So I, I uh, used to used to believe, um, I think many of the same things that you believe, but I've sort of changed my mind a bit as well. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that changed my mind was the uh, the rediscovery for, for just for me personally of internal DSLs. Mm -hmm. um, so do you want to define that or should I define that? Yes, I'd like to define it because there is also misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. So an internal DSL you is at, at first glance is defined as one where the code you write in the DSL, the, the sentences of the language, if you will, lives inside a program expressed in a general purpose language, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a bunch of Java code or Groovy code or Groovy code or Scala code, and it has the usual Java, Ruby, whatever keywords, but then somewhere in there, there is something that reads more like, for example, a sentence, like, you know, or where you chain a bunch of dot expressions uh, which is what I would call the fluent API. Other people call it an mm -hmm. internal DSL, which I think is a joke, but okay. Um, that, that is how people usually define it. Um, would you agree to that definition? Well, yes. I would, I would point out that different general purpose languages are differently suited. To yeah, yeah, language, of course. Yes. Right? Well, but but yes. See, I, this, would have, I would have given a similar definition. But it's, I think it's a, it's, the definition is wrong. Okay. Or, or at least it is not complete because... What what is an additional, in my opinion, condition for calling something an internal DSL is that the language definition is done with the means of the host language. Okay, so that is why uh, different languages, different general purpose languages, have different capabilities of defining um, the internal DSLs because you basically need some means of meta programming, of introspecting the code, of rewriting. Mm -hmm you know, ASTs, or if you do it in small talk, you intercept calls and do meta class, meta object protocol, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. The reason why I emphasize that is because we have um, built lots of extensions to a general purpose programming language like, like C or Java or even this kernel F functional programming language, where you do mix general purpose and domain specific stuff. But the meta programming is not done with the host language. I mean, C obviously, has no means of defining internal DSLs, right? So we have done the meta level with an external tool. Resulting is something that looks like an internal DSL, but it is defined with the means and te techniques and tools of external DSLs. And this gives you much better support in terms of code completion, type checking, and all these other nice things you want to have usually. So that's so, why hmm. I make that distinction. So in that in those particular examples, are the programs in that internal DSL still valid C programs, for example? No, of course not. They okay. are so, well. Yeah. I mean, yes, in the sense that they are their semantics is defined by a translation to C, right? So in that sense, yes. Oh, but that's not the same thing. Okay, so I, then I, hmm, I'm not sure why you why you say that the first definition that you gave is wrong. It's incomplete. I think you you sort of extended it. You you well you extended it to mean something that I don't think anybody intended it to mean in the first place and then had to add something to make it what it was at the beginning. So I'm not 100% sure, sure about that. I think basically everybody who did internal DSLs would have ex sort of implicitly expected them to still be valid whatever programs, right? If you do a Ruby internal DSL, then you expect the code to be valid Ruby code. 
if you do that. Well, but that's exactly what I'm saying. That is thing. that is part of the definition of this gen of of the mainstream definition of internal DSLs. Okay, so I agree with you. Then let's let's add that to a necessary part. Yeah. Um, of the of the internal DSL thing. Mm -hmm. So um, as you pointed out, the, there is a if if one uses that definition of an internal DSL, there is a very um, a very fluid boundary between what to call an internal DSL and what not to call yeah. one, which is why I don't really use the term anyway, yes. right? I don't use it a lot because many people would argue that that is just an API and they'd be right. Exactly. That's what it is, right? You write some library code and that gives you some abstractions used with a uh, built with the means that the programming language offers you. Yeah. So obviously that's just a valid program. If it happens to be a library, then you would call it a library. Well, why is it, why does it, why does it need a different name? Yes. And I agree, it doesn't really need a different name. It could just be called a program or an API or whatever makes sense for you. The interesting thing for me, though, was that um, I became interested in, in, uh, in code generation and in, in all of those model-driven things at a time where it was really hard to write programs, specifically mainstream programs in, main, in a certain mm -hmm. mainstream programming language. Yeah. Um, and it was possible to uh, to up the productivity dramatically. Mm -hmm. That's what got me interested in the first place. Yeah. Um, and that sort of went away a bit as the environment became a little bit more agree a little bit more um, usable. Yeah. Right? So that the user experience improved. That doesn't change anything fundamental about the whole concept. Doesn't it? Doesn't devalue the concept at all. Well, I, Not I mean, all, but it it reduced the it reduced the the friction, right? Yes, it made it the pain. easier to get by without the concept. Yeah, the, the classical example was the early J2EE crap, right? Exactly. Um, right. There you had so much verbosity and repetition in all these what, what, deployment descriptors and interfaces and yeah. base classes yeah. and shit. You basically had to generate to retain your sanity. Um, also, programming languages like C um, really aren't very good at building higher-level abstractions. Um, and therefore, for, I mean, just just think about implementing a stupid state machine in C. You basically need a code generator if it becomes any degree of complex, the, the state machine. And so the worse your target architecture is, the, the less capable your means of expressing things, the more pain you experience and the more there is the need to build a custom language, right? That's basically your point. Yes, you are right. It reduced the need drastically. Yeah. And I agree to that, by the way. I would not recommend people to build a DSL, for example, on top of Spring or Spring Boot. Right? It, it doesn't make much sense. A technical well, DSL. Yeah. Well, yeah. The technical DSL. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that the, the other thing that I just sort of discovered, or we discovered, I don't know, some people found out, was that um, once you start um, questioning the whole thing, you really have to see it as something that is a typical, a thing with a typical architectural trade-off. Which, you question which, what? Of, which reflects what? My, my current view of the whole. Of what the is whole the concept. whole thing you question? I, I forgot the So context. the whole thing I'm talking about is the idea of, um, of using an, of building and using a language for okay. a particular purpose. Mm -hmm. Right? So the, um, I'm not at all saying that this is always a bad idea. Not mm -hmm. at all. Um, I think it is sometimes an excellent idea to do that. I think sometimes an internal DSL is a very good option. Um, I think sometimes it's not. I think sometimes you're, you're much better off with an external language, which you might sometimes best build with traditional boring tools or sometimes with a full-featured language engineering platform. Called Language Workbench, Be yeah. 
whatever, right? So the, uh, I think the, the 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 sort of the the opinion that I've arrived at is that it is an absolutely useful concept to have sort of in your tool chain, right? Um, and you should be able to apply that if it matches your requirements, but it really has to match your requirements because it's not for free. But how is that not true for cost? It has Stefan, a huge, huge cost. How is this statement not true for everything? It is. It is. That's all I'm saying. It's true yeah, for everything. Of course. That's exactly the point. Yeah. But of course, if I talk to somebody who is sort of an advocate or an evangelist for one particular approach, then like I me. found that you know people who do that tend to overemphasize the applicability and tend to use it in many places where it's not a good idea. And they tend to uh, de-emphasize or undervalue the cost of the whole thing. True. So I may be doing you wrong here, but that is, you know, that's that's all. No, I, I mean, this is... People need to be aware of that as well. Yeah, but this is also a true statement, right? I mean, it's also true for microservice architects, right? I oh, mean, yes, it's, I completely agree. It's so, I mean, so far, I'm, I mean, I'm trying to provoke you a little bit, but so far you've made general statements about stuff that's always true for every technology and software. So we can agree that is very good. I mean, we can agree that all things have downsides, yeah. have been hopefully some benefits. I mean, hopefully at least some, but they also have downsides. And now we can maybe talk about the particular applicability of this these particular approaches in some example situations, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is essentially what now every architect who is aware of those things has to do, right? If if they look at something, they have to consider all the options that they have. And then they have to make an informed decision. So maybe we can talk a bit about the pros and cons and about the applicability and lack of applicability of each approach yeah. in different scenarios. Should I start with the cons of DSLs? Sure. Good idea. All right. So you need this tool to build the language, right? These are usually not the most mainstream tools you can get. So you have some kind of tool dependency. Okay? That's... Mm -hmm obvious um, you might choose open source software which makes this dependency less painful next drawback is it's not a, a technique with which most developers you have on your team or you can easily get on the market have a lot of experience right and so it's easy to screw up not because it's rocket science but just because people have less experience okay um mm -hmm. The th so these two things, I think, are rather um, obvious. Um, I think the next two drawbacks are uh, more interesting. One is that, um, well, let, let me give you an anecdote. When, when the iPhone was invented or came on the market, obviously we all know Nokia... Um, ceased to be the dominant smart no not smartphone mobile phone manufacturer and they had a hard time uh you know switching their focus to smartphones and something i heard um i think it's true but i don't have proof is that they have put so much effort into very efficiently developing the old style of uh, mobile phones that they were resisting to throw away all their tooling. I don't want to call it a language, right? But their tooling uh, in favor of something completely different. And so it basically building a DSL and associated tools because of the investment and maybe your slightly narrow focus on what it is you do, uh, it might, um, you know, narrow your focus to not see changing business requirements or a completely different changing, changing world around you. 
Okay. So mm -hmm. that is certainly an argument. And then the final one that is a drawback, uh, in my opinion, is that depending on how you organize development of such a language, I mean, it, it's very easy to make it waterfall, right? You first develop the language for two years and then let's see. Of course, that is a stupid idea and you should do it differently and you can do it differently. But often, you know, building infrastructure uh, in that sense is often something that is an excuse of, <laughs> you know, Elfenbeintoming for a while. And that's, that's not a good idea. So these were the drawbacks I come up with uh, off the top of my head. Do you have additional mm -hmm. ones? Well, those are very good. I like the third one very much because that is one of mine, one of my pet peeves, right? Yep. The, uh, the 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 whole sort of, I like to call it emotional misattachment, right? You invest so <laughs> much into something that you become so attached to it that it becomes increasingly hard to throw it away. And it's, it's related to the sunk cost fallacy, right? You, yes. you invested so much time in that particular thing. Yep. Um, I th it, it was something that I, that, that, um, I briefly thought of in your, in your introduction at the beginning when you mentioned um, when you mentioned those things, I think that there is a certain, um, a certain legacy aspect to the thing, right? You build, you you have to be aware that what you're building is something that you will have to treat as legacy, right? It's it's something in in a positive in well, in the in the sense that you've inherited it now, you own it now, you have to take care of it. You're you're responsible for that thing. Yeah. If I if I pick a general purpose programming language, it's somebody else's problem to maintain that language. It's somebody well, else's problem see, to evolve it. Right? See, this is one I don't of have these, to do that. But this is one of these typical, I think, misalignments people make. Because it's not in this case about maintaining the language. It's about maintaining all kinds of libraries and other abstractions you build to build your applications. And those you have to maintain. So the comparison or the uh, yeah, the comparison of a DSL is really more the framework or the set of libraries or the base platform or whatever you want to call it um, that you build for your domain. And that is something people almost always do. So that's what you compare the DSL to. Well, it's, yes, it's hard, it's hard to, to, to define the exact line, right? Where, mm, where, where, where on the continuum do you sit? You can have the same discussions when you talk to people about um, whether it's a better idea to pick a mainstream programming language mm -hmm. Yes. mainstream general purpose programming language or something more fancy right so that's a that's a discussion that you have with yes with let's say functional programming advocates all the time yeah. one i like functional programming languages i think they're an awesome idea it's a very good thing you just have to be aware that you get this additional um, um level of expressiveness right you have this language if you if you believe most i think most functional programming advocates do believe that their languages have additional expressive power right that you can write better programs because you're using a more powerful programming language. Sure. Regardless of that, whether that's true or not, even if it were true or even if it is true, you also pay for the fact that you didn't use this other language. Of course, yeah. you can say, that's not really the point. I mean, somebody else is maintaining both of them. You should really be thinking about the code that you maintain in those languages. And maybe the code that you have to maintain if you use a more powerful language is easier and fewer lines so that's a benefit on the other hand maybe fewer people can understand it when they just look at it because they first have to learn this exotic programming language that they use i'm just saying it's not a it's not a it's not a simple thing right it's a very sure. complicated and very nuanced thing that you have to make your mind up about yeah and, and of course the, the the criterion that you typically use is a trade-off in terms of the benefit and the cost like if you right. are let's say 30 or 50% more um, effective with your functional programming, lang programming language, assuming you can get 
the good developers that know how to use it, um, then maybe that's worth the cost of using a less mainstream language, right? I would say for 30 to 50%, probably not. Um, with DSLs, we have had cases of uh, a factor 5 or 10, not percent, factors of 5 or 10 of increased effectiveness or efficiency or speed. And then, of course, there might be a little bit of a, of a different trade-off. So that the, the benefit has to be big enough to bite the bullet. Right. So... So one, I wanted to add one or two more things, right? Sure. So one thing is when you, when you, well, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but let me go back to the first thing I wanted to say. In addition to the fact that you have to maintain this thing and that you know how the cost, you have to bear the cost of maintaining that thing for for the foreseeable future for the time where you want to maintain the programs in that particular mm -hmm. uh, DSL, um, you also might end up having. Uh, multiple, having to support multiple versions of the damn thing. Sure, something that happened to myself. And in, in one, one particular project, because other uh, differently from other projects where we did that approach, um, we had a, we had a sort of the idea of having a uh, having a uh, team that provided this language for multiple other teams, mm -hmm. right? So the the other teams upgraded the language uh, or upgraded to newer versions of the language uh, at their own speed. Mm -hmm. So the central team ended up having to maintain multiple versions and then. Having to be able to find uh, to to do a migration from version n minus three to version mm -hmm. n, and that all increases the cost. It's all doable. It's not nothing's impossible here. It's all doable, but it just increases the cost, and you have to be aware that the benefits don't have to be great only at this particular moment where you do a measurement, but also over the over the sure. lifetime over the complete life cycle of the whole thing. Which brings me to the second thing, which is uh, the five to ten time increase in productivity that you mentioned, or whatever it was. Um, and I totally buy that, but the question is five to ten times compared to what? Is it five to ten times compared to a naive approach? Like I can very well imagine if I if I have a bunch of C programmers that just use the C language to to uh, with its abstractions to build something that's quite complicated, you can you can increase their productive productivity drastically. Maybe you could have also increased it by moving to a different general purpose language. Maybe you could have increased it by Building some more abstractions into their core programming language. I, sure. I don't know. It's 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 just, it's an. I'm just sure. saying it's not as easy and as straightforward as Absolutely. it might seem. And it, that's yes. that's all I'm saying. Yeah, and as everybody knows, to make good propaganda, you have to choose the right comparison, right? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> so yes, potentially changing to another programming language instead of C might solve some of these problems. On the other hand, uh, in many contexts, that's not an option because you don't have another language different compiler for your processor, right? So you have you're forced to use C, and you have to make do with it. Um, or Fair your, that your, could your, be an excellent argument. I would your, completely your buy that argument, right? Yeah, your, your customer, so totally. for example, ESA forces you to use C and you have just no question. Or, or even worse, I just recently learned that even for the most modern helicopters of the German armed forces, they still use ADA AT3. I'm sure you could use some abstractions on top of that. Um, mm -hmm. So, But that is, if you will, a little bit of a special case, right? Um, um, but there are other... Um, reasons for example let's say let's say you think it is useful that your domain experts who are not programmers right they might be doctors healthcare professionals they might be tax uh, specialists they might be public benefit uh, you know civil servants they you let's say you let's presume you think it's uh, sensible that they are able to express programming logic instead of writing requirements documents or user stories or something like that 
you're not going to give them uh, closure plus plus, right? To build high level function of function as value mutable immutable stuff. It's not going to work. You you need to give them something that has less apparent complexity. It uh, has uh, language constructs that are more aligned with their world. It might use, um, you know, again, as I said before, tables or mathematical functions or the occasional diagram mixed with text to be able to express these things. And it also turns out that in many domains, the actual complexity isn't the the surface complexity. Like, for example, in, in text calculations, well, it's a bunch of decisions and a bunch of math. Where's the problem, right? The problem is that uh, you operate on temporal data, you get new versions of this stuff every year, you have to do basically semantic version checking between subsequent versions to make sure the, the, the calculations, if they cross multiple years that have different calculation rules, are still kind of con consistent. How do you do that with a general purpose language? You, you, you don't. So at least I have no well, idea how to do this. So no, I agree. I agree. But on the other hand, I've seen projects where the where this was the promise given in the beginning, right? The um the, the business the, the the domain experts can actually write code yeah. then instead of writing a document that a developer has. And in the end it didn't it didn't end up that way, right? Because the domain people couldn't couldn't do that. They well, just it, couldn't. It, 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 they it, were, does, it depends it, on the kind of domain people that you have. Of course. Right? I'm not I'm not it, dissing them. I'm and, not saying they're, they're no, no. So, I mean, obviously, I have to say in my case, it works, obviously, right? But more seriously, um, the tools to build these languages have changed quite a bit. So, um, it is more likely today that the approach can work than it was maybe 15, 10, 15 years ago with UML and a bunch of picture drawing tools. I, I, I completely buy that, yes. I'm sure the tools have gotten a lot better. And I definitely do think there are, there are certain certain domains where... Um, these domain experts are really technical, and I'm not tech, I'm not saying technical in terms of you know whether or not they can debate whether this or that microservices uh, approach is the better one. I'm talking technical in their domain, right? Yep. They're, they're actually they're very they're very much able to express things uh, completely consistently. They can they can uh, they can uh, they can. They can use an appropriate tool for the whole thing. I mean, you, you see people who are absolute wizards at tools like Microsoft Excel, right? They may not be great C programmers or Visual Basic programmers, but they just mm -hmm. absolutely fantastically work with a thing. They may, they may be controllers, or they may have some other some other job that you know where their domain knowledge maps really nicely to the way Excel expresses stuff. I, I don't care. There are definitely people who can work with different kinds of tools. What I've observed a lot of times, though, is that this ended up being a benefit more for the reading than for the writing part, which I think is still a good benefit. It's still a very good it thing is. if a domain expert can read code that a developer wrote, right? Say, let's let me show you, let me show you this code. That look at it and tell me whether this looks as if it's correct. Yeah. And domain people can spot mistakes there, but of course, as you know, I will. I can argue that that works for internal DSLs as well, because the problems that you rightly point out for the usability of internal it, DSLs or some or general purpose code for yeah. domain experts is of course that the tooling is sucks and is not at all suitable for use by somebody who is not also an expert in the general purpose program. And, and not just the issues. tooling, also the degrees of freedom you have to customize the notation. It depends on the host True. language, but yes. it's usually quite limited. Yes. On the other hand, if the person who then ends up writing that stuff is the developer, 
right? If it's a, if it, and I've seen that as well, right? There's there's a developer who would be perfectly fine writing Java, Python, Ruby, C sharp, whatever code, but instead they have to use some half-assed external DSL based thing, and they keep cursing all day, right? Insulting, throwing insults at the language engineer who built mm -hmm. that thing. Just give me my program. I know how to use my program. I know my my IDE. I know all the shortcuts. I'm much more efficient with that standard programming language that I'm using all the time. And instead of having to do having to use that particular yeah. highly super specific tool. I mean I'm not you know, saying that's always true. I'm just no. saying that's sometimes true. Yeah, but you see, um first of all, maybe half assed is the problem. Um but the the, <laughs> true. the, the, the other thing is um you, you talked about maintenance before. Um so the um the the use case of the guy who did the satellite software, right? Uh, based mm -hmm. on DSLs. Um, and I can give you a, a, a link to a paper if you want to oh, put yes, it into please. the show notes. Um, then um, he, he, the point was that it's not just about expressing the code so the software runs. Um, it's also about expressing things in a way that allows you to generate all the you know billions of pages of documentation that ESA wants and uh, a bus encoding for the communication protocol and a mock ground station to command the satellite and so on. So all of these things you can only automatically derive if you describe suitably declaratively in a suitably abstract way. You you just you just cannot do that if you implement it in C. It's just impossible. And so it doesn't really uh, matter. I'm not, I'm, well, maybe not in C, but if you have a if you have a decent well, I'm not I'm not dissing C either. It's a it's a reasonable useful programming language. It doesn't matter whatever, about dissing. You cannot do yeah. that in C. Well, I think what you cannot always do, and I seem to recall that. Maybe I'm just imagining this now, but I seem to recall that's even in your book. I don't know, but the, of course you can. You can if you can have you can build a model with whatever technology you have. I mean, you can have, you can build a declarative model. It's, it may it may become very unwieldy to do that, but you can you can uh, you can design um, whatever it is that you want to model as an explicit model that's addressable, that's data, that is it maybe in an OO language, you'll build a sure. object model for expressing the thing, maybe a pain in the ass to do all of that work. Yes, exactly. And it might be, might be much easier to just use the external DSL tool, I completely buy that. It might be, but it also might not be, right? So but you can, of course, do it. It's then part of your program and it's, it's, it's written in one of those general purpose languages. Again, you can argue, is it better or worse that it's written in that language? It's a now additional code that is there. But it's understandable by everybody who can use that thing. It doesn't add any additional it is, uh, dependency on any external tools. You don't. You have no dependency on open source yeah. provider or My, commercial provider or anybody else. It's just part of. You have a dependency on yourself. It's like saying, "I'd rather write this myself than use that library or that tool from somebody else that I may or may not trust." It's sure. it's a decision that you have to make. Yeah, of course, and I'm not suggesting you shouldn't carefully. Uh, decide whether uh, investing into a DSL is a good idea, right? I, I do Excellent. think that is true, as is for any other technology and approach you use. Maybe here mm -hmm. is a little bit more um, pronounced because it's such a, quote, niche technology. But again, it, you just cannot um, ask your uh, doctor, uh, healthcare guy, to write uh, Java code that assembles some kind of object graph, which is then the input to a generator, which is what you'd have to do if you have no language. It just doesn't fly. It just isn't. It's, it's in theory, what you say is completely true. You could do that. But in practice, you can't. 
If you Holger, want your domain expert to do that, you need to give them a good language with a good tool. Okay, I completely agree if they are supposed to write the whole thing. Yes. Right? You can't give a, a domain expert. You can't Even give reading. Who's not, reading, I don't agree with that. that I depends, do totally that depends, agree. Try that, to, depends on the, that depends on the power and expressiveness of the programming language that you're using. Yeah, it's but as soon as... It's absolutely possible if, you're a, if you've got a high-level language, let's say a Lisp or a Ruby or maybe even a small talk, then I think you could get away with that. You can write code that domain experts can read and assess well, and that, judge. Yes, but it, it works quite well for structures. It works less well for behaviors. Um, uh, again, I would argue it depends on the kind of behavior, right? It, of so, course it does. But the, right. the, the kind of stuff I do in my domains, it's maybe not impossible, but it's hard. True, which is maybe also a good a good positive example of selection bias, right? If maybe it's just that you that your 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 knowledge and your experience gets applied to domains where it makes perfect sense. So that's which, perfectly fine. Then, which which so. also instead of calling it selection bias, I might call it I'm <laughs> you know I make sure I don't sell people a hammer if they don't have nails. That's right. Positive. So I, I, I intended it to be positive. <laughs> I'm just no, yeah, no, it's yeah. just selection bias. I mean, of course, for example, we uh, we, we build a lot of. We build a lot of web-based systems. Yeah. We, we we build we only occasionally build native apps, right? So most of the time that works perfectly well. Maybe that's just because web apps are better than native apps, or maybe it's I don't understand how. To, I don't whatever. understand how that it's, relates. How, why does the why is the? Well, I'm saying the selection bias means that you're that you. Oh, okay. I get it. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. You know something you're good at that right, works right, right, well, right. and that sort of yes. reinforces itself. I did, yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. mean it as an insult. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Other things maybe, but not that one. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, so the um, the um, the other thing. Let me. What was that that I wanted to say? Um, I do think that the that the cost is also generalizable. I mean, this this cost discussion, cost benefit thing, as you said, is true for everything, right? I think the cost benefit thing is also in general true for um, specific versus generic tooling in general, right? On many different. You can have you can have a thousand examples where. Um, there is a benefit to picking some general purpose thing versus a specific thing and the other way around as well. And you just have to find the right balance for your particular situation there. So we mm -hmm. can definitely agree on that. And, uh, and I, I trust that you don't, um, that you don't uh, sell stuff in a snake oil fashion to make everything everywhere always um, require the engineering of a new language. Um, oh. And I, on the other hand, I, I do think, and maybe that is... Maybe that is another observation, sort of from a, from a little more distance. I think that, um, as with many hypes, right, and the and the model-driven thing was sort of way more hyped for a certain amount of time than it is today. Yeah. Um, when it was very popular, um, expectations were, I think, way too high, overblown, not by you but by other people. And then uh, when it got the inevitable backlash, it sort of. Uh, ended up the same way as many other things as well, sort of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? There's sure. a lot of things, a lot of situations where the simple concept of having something that's declarative, something that's an engine, something that's interpreted, something that allows you to reason about that thing that it is you want to express is an absolutely awesome idea, independently of what, how you express it. And many people don't have that idea anymore. That's a little sad, I think. True. So, I'm not sure whether I'm making myself clear, but that was the, that's one thing that really annoys me, that people don't even have this, this concept as as a as part of their tool chain anymore. 
probably just angry old men. So, so if we go back to to try to connect this to DDD, right? Which yeah. was uh, about an hour ago was was our starting point. Um, so, let me express my hypothesis here, which is, mm -hmm. if you have a ubiquitous language, the intent of which is to make sense to business people and to technical people, and to faithfully represent what your business is about, right? Then I think, not in all, but in many considerations, it, it makes sense to allow the business people to express themselves in that language, right? You want them if the language is ubiquitous, to be able to write sentences in that language and basically to define and analyze and test, by the way, that's important, the business logic of the system they're building um, themselves. Of course, this only makes sense if you have a domain where there is enough core business logic amount and complexity, right? Um, and that's not always the case. But, but if you buy it so far then I think building a DSL with appropriate, with appropriate uh, you know, abstractions and notations is a valid, if you will, extension uh, or implementation of the idea of DDD. And I, mm -hmm. my experience is that many DDD people just don't see that like that at all. And that, that was the, the starting point for my thoughts on this topic. Why is right. that? So, so I, w I would agree with you. I would at least, in principle, agree with you because the uh, uh, you're right that the that the that the core model that you're supposed to define, which can include behavior, if your language covers behavior as well, um, should be something that is shared, um, that is owned, that can be you know understood and reasoned about and talked to uh, to the business people. So I think that is a that is an actually uh, a perfectly valid implementation. I do think that probably I say that because I have the background in that in that language engineering thing a bit at least as well right you know mm -hmm. i used to do a lot of mda type, type stuff whatever not the same tooling but the same general concept people who don't share that will take much longer to convince that could be just because they don't know it could also be because they they're they don't see the additional value and maybe there are two things related here one is that um if you're if you're following the the the, the ddd idea then the model then the domain model that you implement will be relatively free of technical details, right? Something that that I used to argue, uh, that I used to use as an argument for a model-driven approach always was that you don't want your business knowledge mixed sure. with all of the technical details of stuff. Tojo, blah blah blah. Exactly right. So in in this in the in the in the in the DDD world, it's very it's ideal, not always achieved, but it's definitely a goal. To have a model, a business model, a domain model that really has no technical de dependency to any, you know, any uh, database or UI framework or whatever it is that surrounds this core sure. uh, core set of abstractions. So people said, "Yeah, of course, I could switch Java and use external DSL XYZ instead, but I don't see I don't see much additional benefit. To me, it's just changing see, a very popular programming language to another one." And, that's, and of course, you would argue that it's that is a completely invalid comparison. But yes. that is, I think, what goes through people's minds there, right? Sure, See, that's what I'm. I have what a language I'm, that's more useful, but it's not changing anything fundamental. It does, and that is the thing I seem to be unable to get over or to get across, right? Not just to you, or not to you, but but I I once submitted oh. a, a, 
Go, go ahead. I definitely think it changes something. I definitely change. I definitely think it changes something. It might even change a lot if it's a good language that allows you to express things much more concisely than uh, what your general purpose language would allow you to do, right? Which is not necessarily the case. Depends, obviously, on how well the language is designed. The, the point right? is, it allows the, other people to do it, and that is the core benefit. Right. It, so the, it brings the, the, these people yes, from also. document writers into concrete, uh, well, you know, use producers, a stupid wording. As you say, I think that is true if they are, um, if they are experts in something that merits this, right? And so I think in many cases, and that's my, my personal experience as well, in many cases you have domain experts who know really know a lot, but they're really not programmers. And yes. the knowledge that they have is not expressible in, that they could, it doesn't matter which, which language you, you gave them, because there exists no language that matches their knowledge, because their knowledge isn't as as finely structurable. If that's yes, the word. these do right? exist. They're not. They're not. They're not uh, physicists who yes. talk about the formulas But, of a of some, of some yes. observable system. The, the, they're not uh, health experts who talk about the symptoms well, and treatments for something. They're more general. They're more general purpose than experts. Than that. <laughs> The general yes, the general purpose. Sort of exactly. That's what they are. They know no, a lot but, about but, the, they but, know a lot about different aspects of different parts of the domain. So but, it's it's very hard to find additional benefit beyond what a general purpose language. So provide. this is where I just totally and fundamentally disagree. I mean, for example, um, you just talked about doctors, right? The 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 domain or the market of digital therape therapeutics is a, is a huge and growing market, right? And the thing you do there is you formally, and you have to do it formally because of FDA certification, right? Um, you formally define treatments and diagnoses. Um, almost everything that has to do with financial products is of that sort. Everything that relates to law, government, public benefits calculations, tax calculations is, is like that. Um, not even talking about technical domains or science-oriented domains. So while I totally agree that there are uh, domains or applications where the knowledge isn't structurable or formalizable, there is a huge set of domains where this is possible and people still write stupid documents. And that oh, is where I'm interested in, in improving yes. the situation. I agree with that. So I think maybe we can maybe we can agree to to this. Let me try to to phrase this in a different way. There are certain things, and I think I had a similar discussion with Mike actually in one of the last episodes. I'll look that up and link to it. Um, I think there are some parts, some domains, or maybe even some parts of a system sure. where this is absolutely true. Right? Where there is Where there, where there are rigorous definitions, where there is absolute truth, where there is, uh, you know, something that's right and something that's wrong and something that may be legally required uh, because of a guideline or a law or a regulation of some kind. There might be some fundamental laws of physics that we're talking about here. There might be some mathematical relationship here. Even the marketing guy all, who defines pricing strategies for train companies. Uh, let me, It well, doesn't have to be mm, about mm, physics. Mm, 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 mm. Let me let me let me try to draw the boundary here. Mm. I think that um, the the uh, the problem begins once the humans enter. 
Once the human part enters into this whole thing, it becomes less well-defined and becomes much more, um, it becomes much softer, much more squishy. It becomes like this annoying, unmathematical part of the system. And I think that is very often the major part of the system. Give me an and example. That's the part where all of the other things start start to matter. Like, um, you know, even in the I can I can phrase this as a as a critique of domain driven design if you want mm -hmm. me to. I think the whole concept of having this model, you know, this this core model in a general purpose programming language without any relation to UIs and databases is completely it's it's completely overblown. It's a very useful thing. I'm not saying it's not useful. But to assume that that model in itself is the core value of your system is a fundamental misrepresentation of basically every system I've seen in the last 30 years. Because basically every system I've seen was way more defined by its usability or lack of usability at the UI part, the way mm -hmm. it made you jump through hoops when you wanted to do something, the complete lack of being usable for anybody you know the whole all of these things like you don't know what you want to have unless you've seen one version of it and they say well that sucks give me that differently and sure. this means that your system you know evolves into something that is more usable or you maybe you do a, a study with some people beforehand to figure out what it is they want to do this is not this is not a fun this is not a mathematical thing and i don't think it, it's addressed by these things it doesn't mean that they're not useful or anything it just means that and we can probably take that tax system as an example as well, right? I don't, I don't doubt that the German tax system is probably the most complicated one in the world, and it, it's, it's absolutely uh, regulated, and there are tons of rules, and it makes zero sense to write that down in documentation form and then have somebody manually translate. I totally get why you, why you would want to formalize that. The interesting question is: Is that ninety-eight percent of the resulting system? Or is it 20%? And do you address the problems of, without talking about that particular system, but do you address the long-term problems of evolution of that system with that engineering approach or with yep. a bunch of other engineering approaches? Yes. That I think is an important discussion. I can give you an example uh, that may give a hint. So first of all, I agree, right? Um, there's no point in having a correct, if you will, let's say core in terms of data model and behavior if the UX is so bad that nobody wants to use it. Um, true, absolutely. Uh, let me give you a little anecdote. The, the Dutch tax agency, right? They, um, they use this approach. They um, have implemented all their tax law as models expressed with a bunch of DSLs. And there is this nice anecdote where years ago, the government, if they wanted to make a change to tax law, they called the tax agency and said, hey guys, if, if we make this change, um, can, can you change the software by the beginning of next year um, to make sure we can actually you know, run this new law? Mm -hmm. Because it took them time to to evolve the software today they still call right and they call so hey um we're thinking about uh, making this change to the law can you by next week uh you know basically pull up uh, create a branch of your of your rule set make a change run it and see how much it benefits or costs the government right so they mm -hmm. have become so much more agile in terms of um changing their business logic um that the the whole um process of interacting with the lawmakers completely changes 
Um, so, mm -hmm. so, and so it is really, it's really about changing the actual behavior at the core of the system. It's really not, it doesn't relate at all to UX at this point or something like that. Right. So maybe that is, you know, that could, that could be, um, that could be something that I could absolutely see as a, as a, as a, as an ideal model. That's not going to happen anytime soon, but could be an ideal model. The law itself, you know, the law itself yeah, 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 be written yeah, yeah. in a form that yes. is declarative and provable and machine checkable. That will never and, happen. You know, that, but that, you know, I know it. I know it won't. But it would be cool if it if it did, because yes. then that would be that would be shipped to everybody who wanted to use it. They could have an interpreter to run that thing, or yeah. they could <clears throat> translate it to C, or they could do whatever. Yeah. But they'd still, and that's my point. They still would have to build an actual system around that thing, and I think large parts of that thing would not be addressable by that particular aspect. That is true. But I think I think we can agree on so many things that I think that is a good chance to to uh, sort of wrap this up because we're at the limit of our time. If there is something that you really, really, really want to discuss before we do that, let's do it now. Well, the, the, I would briefly like to connect to one thing you said before. Um, mm -hmm. And won't take more than five minutes, I hope. So you said that uh, one reason why many DDD people don't even think about building a DSL, even in the cases where we probably both agreed would make sense, is that they don't have uh, exposure to the technology. You know, they did it when, when they were at university using some crappy old tool and it was complicated and you know, don't even have to talk about usability. And so they just forgot it again. Um, so do, do you think it, it, would, it would be useful for... Um, for for people to i mean is it a, a matter of exposure of knowing that this technology exists um or or is there a more fundamental issue um and assume uh that it is a case where we would probably agree it makes sense to use the approach like it's a suitable case i'm not sure maybe it's something that needs to, that you would have to generalize again to a different level like talking about communities and you know the uh, whether something from another community can enter uh, what are the what the, what are the conditions that something from a different community can enter one particular one right so they're always it's like let me let me draw a completely weird analogy right mm -hmm. i i'm i'm sort of for for historical reasons i was part of the java community as well as the ruby community mm -hmm. so that was one of the reasons i liked something called jruby mm -hmm. which is a jvm environment for running Ruby programs. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I respect the people who built that thing. I liked it a lot and we've used it in a number of projects. It sort of worked, so we were kind of happy with that. It's it's close to impossible to get people in one community to even look at that thing, right? And uh, you know, the, to get the Java people to look at Ruby as a, as a valid option for writing mm -hmm. programs mm -hmm. or the Ruby people as using the JVM to run actual Ruby programs. It's mm -hmm. like, it's, it's as if you're, it's as if you're Bozo the Clown uh, doing a stupid joke, right? It's like, and I'm not saying that is the same thing here. I think the DDD community is, is way more open and diverse. It's not as, ne well, that sounds negative. That sounds more negative than I wanted it to sound. Mm. It isn't kind of an open community. So I think it has, it has uh, open eyes and, and open ears and would listen, would listen to stuff like that. But I think it's skeptical as probably many other communities are as well. Um, and um, I'm not sure it's just that. I think there are many experienced people who probably have. Maybe that's one of the problems. Maybe one of the problems is there are that there are experienced people in the DDD community who've seen code generation go wrong, which of course can happen, um, but it's not a fundamental critique of of the concept, right? It's just something that people, um, if if once you have a negative experience with something, it's really it becomes tainted a bit the whole 
idea gets sort of tainted with that particular experience and it's hard to get away from that. Hmm. So I wouldn't, in my personal point of view, I wouldn't hold my breath for a strong adoption of any of those concepts there. No, of course I don't. And that makes me kind of sad because I think there is a potential, quite a bit of synergy in, in, in many, not all, of course, in many cases. Well, personally, I think it, it really depends on, uh, on the kind of approach that you take in general, right? If you're, I think it's, it's, uh, I personally am more of a generalist, right? I don't want to identify too much with any of those one, one particular mm. things. And I think that makes it easier to, to use different things in different situations. Sure. Um, once you strongly identify with whatever concept it is, it's kind of natural and, and only human to sort of, and, and reasonable and, you know, commercially viable to stick to that particular thing. So it's really a matter of strategy. I'm not sure what to do about that. Sounds like we're ending on a sad note here. Yeah, we do. But maybe we can get fantastic reader feedback. Um, listener. By, uh, awesome listener, a uh, listener feedback by awesome, by awesome listeners from the domain of design or language engineering community who would, who will tell us how this is actually working for them in their particular projects. That yep, cool. that would be a good outcome, indeed. Okay. Marcus, it was great and awesome fun to have yes. you on the show. I would love to repeat that again. But we need so to find a different to... topic, right? Uh, yeah, which, of course, won't that. work because this is the only thing I know about as you just kind of blamed <laughs> me. Oh, <laughs> you're just a liar. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll manage something. It was great. Thank yes. you for your Absolutely. time. Thanks to our listeners for Thank listening. Uh, please check the show notes. And until next time, bye-bye. Ciao.